0: Father, again, we uh, just come to you and ask you to keep your promise, and we thank you in advance for keeping your promise that you do not leave us unchanged. Lord, any time you bring your word to us, um, it is for your good purposes, and your good purposes are always accomplished. So, Lord, have mercy on me, uh, a very uh, imperfect man who is coming to preach a, a perfect word and a perfect Jesus uh, to his people, and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So... um, tell you a little story from freshman year in high school. Um, when I was a freshman, a really good friend and I transferred to a, uh, a small private school. And so we were there new together and he, he played football and I didn't. So he was getting to know some of the football players in the summer, and the early fall. And what I didn't realize in the first couple months of school is that I liked a girl who a guy on the football team also liked. And so one day I came back to my locker and my bag my book bag had just been destroyed because somebody had taken white out and written all over it, just terrible stuff. And I couldn't get it off. And so it was like, my bag was ruined. It was embarrassing. And so I'm walking around school for a few days. And then I come to find out that the person who did that was actually my good friend who came over with me. And I was like, man, how could you do that? Right? Like, how could you watch that happen? How could you be the one to make that happen and then watch the, aftermath of that, and uh, we've since, he's still one of my best friends to this day, and we've patched it up, but um, man, that was really painful, and you know, it's just, we all experience stuff like that, but it just hurts a lot more, and it cuts a lot deeper when it's somebody that you thought was your brother, somebody that you could really trust and lean on, and um, that's where we are in, in our Nehemiah series today is uh, if, you, if you're just joining us, we've walked through how the Lord put this vision on Nehemiah's heart to go back and rebuild the city of God for the people of God. Because in rebuilding the city, it's actually that's what's going to enable them to worship God in the temple. And so when they're rebuilding the city, what they're really doing is rebuilding the people of God. They're restoring communion between God and his people And so Nehemiah makes this journey from the lap of luxury. He's a second in command in the Persian government. He goes into the ruins of Jerusalem. And he gathers all these people to do the impossible, but the Lord is with him and continues to sustain him, continues to give him exactly what he needs. But they face all this opposition, and they were all the basically all the surrounding kingdoms were so delighted to have Jerusalem weak, and the walls were down, and so they could take advantage of them. They weren't a military threat. They were dependent on them economically. And so uh, when they saw the walls going back up, they were not happy. And so they began to mount these attacks that were... Um, aim to distract and discourage and and even to kill God's people. But God thwarted their attacks. And so now they're safe from those enemies. But now the enemy is within the wall. The enemy is their own brothers, their own flesh. Um, The the people of God are doing terrible things to each other. And so the first five verses here is just what's happening. There's this great outcry from the people. Um, These people you know, just think about this. These people, um, most of them were farmers. Most of them had farms that they had to take care of. But Nehemiah had called them and said, no, we've got to stay in the city. We've got to spend the night here at the wall. We've got to do, we got to, this is our first priority. And so for who knows at this point how long, but for, for many weeks and months, um, these people are here uh, away from their farms. And so it's putting a huge stress on their families. But on top of that, we, we learned that there's a famine and so it's, it's doubly hard. And so while these people are here sacrificing, giving themselves, giving their time uh, and attention to this corporate project, um, we hear about these differing levels of distress as these people come with complaints. And it, it kind of reads like Goldilocks and the Three Bears a little bit because there's this ramping up with, with these three repetitions. It says, uh, there were those who said, that's the formula. So first there were those who said, hey, we have a really big family with a lot of children and like a lot of children is a blessing. Uh, that's what God's people believe, but they're just saying the facts of like, we have a lot of mouths to feed and food is getting more expensive, it's getting scarce and we need help. And then there were those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and vineyards and houses. And then finally, the, the last one is the worst of all. And then there were those who said, we've already mortgaged everything because of the king's tax. And now we are forced to sell our children into slavery. And there's this, this pitiful line at the end of verse five. We can't help it for other men have our fields and vineyards. Like we don't have a choice. And this was not something that was foreign to the, the ancient Near East. If this was a, a normal practice to sell people into slavery, almost like indentured servitude, that if you didn't have the money to pay off debts, you would sell children into slavery and they would work. And so it was basically like child labor to work to pay off your debts. And you would sell them a lot of times before you would sell your fields because once you sold your fields, if you were selling to people outside the people of God, then they were just gone. And your means to work, your means to finally get to a place where you can make an income were just gone. And so these people were just selling their children like, hopefully this will all turn around and we can buy them back. But the problem is when you sell um, your daughters, a lot of times when the daughters are sold, they become wives of the people that they were sold to. So there's in some sense, you're not going to get them back, at least not in the same way. And so they say, we can't help it because other, other men have our fields and vineyards, but these other men are their brothers, are the nobles and the, the wealthy people. And it says their cry that they're making uh, to Nehemiah and to God through Nehemiah is our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Like we are all the people of God here. Like God loves us the same as he loves them, but look at what's happening like we're having to sell our children into slavery and their children are safe at home. And this is sickening. And, and in a sense what they're saying is they just sat and watched as we sold our children into slavery. They just watched it happen. They could have stopped it because they were the ones that were holding the debt. They could have just said, "Hey, you know what? We'll forgive your debt." But they didn't. And the worst part of all was that it it wasn't like they were starving. It was that they saw an opportunity to make more money. They were being opportunistic, and they didn't even flinch at what was happening as a result of their their play. And so Nehemiah um, in verse six says he was very angry uh, at what had happened. And I wanna just pause here. This is not what the the sermon is about this morning, but um, is anger healthy? What do you think? Yes. Yeah, right. It can be sometimes. Yeah, righteous anger is good and healthy. What would be unhealthy is if this kind of cry came out and no one cared. Mm, yeah, you know, that's just man. That's tough. Sorry. Sorry, that's happening. Go on about our business. Um, Nehemiah was was angry, and it was it was a healthy, good anger, because when anger is healthy and righteous, it is uh, born out of love. It is born out of love for something that you care about or someone that you care about and you are protecting them. And so it says he's angry, and then he he takes counsel with himself, and then it says that he brings them up on charges before the whole community. It's almost like he's saying, no, no, wait, hold on. I want everybody to hear this. Come on, bring everybody in. And so the whole community is here. We have this formal legal process here. And, uh, and then he explains why he's angry. And first, what he says is, um, one of the reasons he's angry is because Nehemiah was going out with his men. They were pooling their resources. Nehemiah was a man of great wealth. He was a man of resources. And he and his people, his closest people, were going out and pooling their resources to try to buy back all of their brothers and sisters that had been sold into slavery to the other nations around Jerusalem. So he's out there, like they're pooling their money together, doing what they can, traveling around, bringing the people back, paying off these debts to foreigners, so that they can have their brothers and sisters back. And these guys are just selling them again, so that they're going to have to go back and buy them back again. He's like, you're doing the very thing that we are trying to stop. And then secondly, it's just um, if you want to spend some time in Leviticus 25, which I know you do um, this week. This whole chapter is, is this part of God's law that talks about what happens with the people of God when somebody goes into debt. And so um, we're gonna be drawn a lot from this chapter this morning. But Nehemiah knew this. Leviticus 25, 35 through 38 said this. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. That your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. What God is saying there is you are not to live like the nations, all the other nations are opportunistic. They live solely by the law, and they take advantage of people where they can, and they try to find loopholes and opportunities, and and it really doesn't matter why or how they get what they get. They're just always looking for a profit, and you are not to operate that way because these people are my sons and daughters. You are my sons and daughters, and your first priority is always people. It's always people, and and I am the one... (laughs) Nehemiah, in a sense, is saying, you're not just undoing what I'm out there doing. You're undoing what God is doing because we were all slaves in Egypt, and that was a terrible life. We were all slaves and all taken advantage of, and people were making a profit on our backs, and it was horrendous, and God brought us out of slavery to give us freedom, to give us dignity, to give us life. And you are undoing the very thing that the God, the whole thing that makes us one people, this God that we follow and serve and worship and is supposed to be our God and showing us how to live. You're undoing the very thing that he says is very important to him. So no matter what you believe about economics, unrestrained capitalism apart from any mercy or grace or love is not good because we are fallen. And when there is no no concern for other people. It will always tend toward taking advantage of other people. Flourishing is the priority. The flourishing of people is the priority. We, we work as people of God. There's always a bigger bottom line. Always. It is never about just financial gain. It is always about what in the big picture are we doing with our work, with our time, with our resources. When we think about being successful, when we think about making a profit, we are not just talking about making financial profits, which are good, because we need that to live. We need that to keep doing things. Um, but it is that plus, what is, what is this doing for our community? What is this doing for our neighbor? What is this doing for our customers, for the people who work for us? How are we, how are we doing this work? And Nehemiah says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Again, we, we are slandering God's character. And we're not just slandering God's character for his love for these poor people, your brothers and sisters who are, are in dire straits, but we're slandering God's character for who he is to you. The, the, the men and women who have resources, who are the nobles and the, the wealthy that are, are doing these deals, we're saying something about who God is to us or who he is not to us. Listen to this. This is from uh, verses 20 and 21 of that Leviticus 25 chapter. It says, and if this is uh, talking about every seventh year, you're supposed to leave a field fallow so that it can have rest and so that it won't be depleted. And um, it says this, and if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Listen to what he says. I will command my blessing on you in the six years so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Listen, you and I, if we always only live by conventional wisdom, we will always live with a scarcity mentality. Why? Because this world is a scary place. Because things happen. Because there are economic downturns. There are unforeseen circumstances. There are car wrecks. There's cancer. There's all sorts of stuff. So if I'm only living out of unconve- out of if I'm living out of unconventional wisdom, that'd be interesting. If I'm living only out of conventional wisdom, I will always live with a me first mentality. I will always live terrified. I will always live like there's a scarcity and there will never be enough. But Nehemiah saying, "Hey, listen, that's not." who you are I mean look these people had plenty and they were still living like this they're still trying to find a profit any way that they can even though they're already the wealthiest people in the community so it's not like you know if you and I are living in a place where we think that there's a a certain line that we can cross financially and then we're going to stop living like this we're fooling ourselves there is no magic number there is no once I get to here then everything's going to change that doesn't exist because even when you have an abundance, you still live like this. But he says, you are, you are slandering God's character for his provision for you. Like, listen to his law. He said, you can leave that field fallow. Why? Because I'm a supernatural God who loves you, and I intervene in your life in a supernatural way. I'm going to make it so that all of your crops are going to grow in abundance and produce more in the six years so that you have enough to do what I'm commanding you to do. And you and I have a heavenly father who loves us, and he always gives us enough to do what he commands us to do. And so, what would the taunts be from these enemies? Or what would the taunts be from the people in our lives who don't know the Lord who see us living like this? They would say, God doesn't care, he must not care about his people. And maybe this must, all this must not be real because they're living just like we are. There's no difference. These people who call themselves Christians, who, who think they're all high and mighty, um, they're doing the exact same things. When, when everything hits the fan and there's a shortage and there's a felt lack, they behave the exact same way that we do. So why would I ever think that this is real? When we live like this, we're making it, not only hard on each other, but we're making it a lot harder for the people who don't yet know God to believe that he is who he really says he is. That he is a God who has mercy and has grace and actually has concern for his enemies and wants them to become his sons and daughters. And so we have to just stop here. I mean, it's easy to leave this in, in Nehemiah and to think, you know, I actually don't have a lot of resources and I'm not lending my money at all. I'm trying to make money just so that I can make it each week. But uh, I want to bring this down to, to our level today and ask, what, what is it inside these nobles that would make them live like this? What is, it, what is it that makes anyone live like this? Well, there's this orphan mentality that we're afraid of scarcity, so we hoard. Um, I mean, look at what happened with toilet paper during COVID. Um, but it's like my friend in high school. It's like the story I told you. He was living out an orphan mentality when he did that. If I don't make it with these guys, I have nothing. Like, this is my only hope. And guess what? I've done that kind of thing to other people and worse. And that's because I'm living out an orphan mentality. I have to behave this way. I have to not have any concern for you because all I can think about is me. Because if I don't get this, if this doesn't happen, if things don't go the way that I need them to go, then everything is lost, so I actually don't have any capacity to think about you at all. As, as I'm making these calculations on whether or not this is a good idea. But we're not just orphans. It's, it's not only that we have this orphan mentality, it's actually something far deeper and far worse. It's that we're orphans and we're slaves. We are, we are slaves to sin. Jesus says in John 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Think about that. When you really stop and think and there's some clarity of mind, like practicing sin, no matter what it is, is, is foolishness. And yet we keep doing it because we can't stop because that's all we know. We are slaves to sin. And Enslaved people, enslave people. Like when you think about uh, dysfunctional families I had a friend last night, some massive stuff went down uh, because of these dysfunctional family systems that they're living in. And when you come from a dysfunctional family until you are out in the world and with other people, you don't know that it's a dysfunctional. That's all we know. We can't do anything else, because we don't know anything else. And on a cosmic level, that's the state of the human race is we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to believing false things about God. We're slaves to believing false things about ourselves because we don't know any better. We can't know any better because of this place that we've, we've gotten ourselves to. And so when you ask, man, how could somebody do that? How could they not do that? That's all that they know. And when I'm a slave, I have no problem seeing people sold into slavery because I'm like, yeah, that is just how it goes. And I have no problem selling people into slavery because I'm like, well, that's just what you do. When you take an opportunity, when you get an opportunity, you take it. That's all that there is. And we've been treated like that. And so... You know, aside from actually selling people into debt slavery, which I don't think any of us have done. If you have, I'd be interested to hear that story. But how do we do this? How do we how do we sell people like this? How do we um, demand everything back plus interest uh, in our lives? Well, we see people not primarily as a child of God uh, with dignity. We don't see people primarily as our brother and sister that we should actually love and care for. Um, people just become opportunities for me. Um, I want everything that I can get from you because I'm always afraid of running out because there's never enough. And if I do something for you, I always want it back plus interest. When I live like this, I will always find a reason that you owe me. Why? Because all I'm doing is thinking about myself. I will never see the equation rightly. I will never see the things that I did that actually put me in your debt ways that I've sinned against you, ways that I've fallen short in caring for you. I will, it's just a tunnel vision. I will only see ways that you have come up short for me and let me down, and ways that you owe me and how, how righteous it is for me to demand that you pay me back. And so what does this look like in our lives? It's um, with my children. Um, I did that this weekend. Uh, I was single parenting, so give me, some, give me a break here. Um... But all of a sudden they exist to validate me and make me happy. They exist to validate me and make me say, oh yeah, I'm a good dad, I'm a great person because look at, look at what a great dad I am. Look at how they're turning out. Look at how they always obey and never disobey. And so now all this stuff that is my problem, I put on them and demand that they come through for me or my spouse or significant other if you're dating or your roommates or your friends. Your purpose in my life is to validate me and make me happy. It's to help me continue to live in this fantasy land that I've created where I am actually the only person who's not a sinner. And I'm a pretty good guy, and everybody else has a problem. And if everybody else could just get on board with me, then the world would be a better place. Do that at work. Um, Guess what, guys? We could even do that here. Can you believe that? That like the whole point of this gathering of people, that this community of the people that I would engage with here is to validate me and make me happy. And so when that stops happening or that doesn't happen the way that I want, then where do we go from there? But the good news is that we're not stuck here. Um, You see, as Nehemiah continues, as this unfolds, Nehemiah is talking about a very different way of living he's talking about giving everything back and expecting nothing in return. And so how do we get there? How is that possible for us? Well, it's, it's possible because of the greater Nehemiah. It's possible because of our Jesus, who, who like Nehemiah, except to a, a perfect, infinite degree, um, he came into the ruins and he divested himself of his great means, and he became a slave, actually, so that we could be set free, He he went and he, he gave everything to buy us back from this pitiful, pitiful life of slavery that we've been stuck in. And he didn't ask anything in return. It was his joy to set us free because he loves us. That's what real love is, is not a for you, for me, but it's a for you, the end. And he doesn't need anything from us because he experiences perfect love within himself and the Trinity, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why the, the doctrine of the Trinity is so important because if there is no Trinity, there is no love, there is no completeness apart from us and then God must need something from us. But that is not true. God gave everything out of just pure love and apart from him, we don't know love like that. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, he even became a slave so that you by his poverty might become rich. So now, because the father loves us so much that he would send his son to suffer and die in our place and that the son loves us so much that he would do this, now, this, what this does is this melts our cold and calloused hearts, it allows us to love. It allows us to actually now have a problem because we've been loved like this. I can't stomach anymore making a profit off of you and watching you suffer so that I can have more. I can't do that anymore because of the way that I've been loved by my Jesus. And now I don't have to live in scarcity because I'm like Harry Potter with the, the Green God's bank account. Like I have this infinite wealth and maybe I've never accessed it before, but it's there. Because if I'm in Christ, I have become rich. That's what 2 Corinthians 8 9 just said is I have all the abundance of Christ's wealth at my disposal now in him. And so I don't have to live with this scarcity mentality anymore. And now, I mean, most of the time we just stop there with those two thoughts, but but this is actually the most important thought of all. Now I can treasure him. Now he is my treasure. It's not the things of this world, it's not comfort, it's not my security or my popularity or my anything. It's this God who is beautiful, who has given himself for me, who is he is wisdom incarnate, goodness incarnate, love incarnate, he is joy incarnate, he is peace incarnate. He is beautiful and worthy of my treasuring. And that he is the only thing that my heart will rest satisfied in treasuring. And some of y'all hear this right now, and you're like, "Man, that just sounds like a bunch of garbage. I can't imagine I cannot imagine treasuring Jesus more than the things that I treasure. First um, John two: fifteen says this, "If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's like, man, if you haven't tasted this, um, of course not, but if you have." then how, do we not, how does he not become more beautiful to us than, than everything? And so if you're at a place where you don't know what I'm talking about, then here's the beautiful thing about this beautiful God is that um, go to him, ask him. Ask him to show you who he really is. Ask him to make himself more beautiful to you, and he will. And so now in Christ, what what does life look like now? The last few verses here, um, free people, free people. It works the same way. If you're a slave, you're going to enslave people with the way that you treat them. If you're free, you're going to set people free. Uh, This now becomes possible what Nehemiah says. We can return to these people this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their houses, and the percentage of money on top of that, of their grain and wine and oil that we have been extracting from them. We can restore these things and require nothing from them. That's the freedom that we have now. And we can go out like Jesus, like Nehemiah, as rich people and leverage our resources for the freedom of our brothers and sisters. What does this look like? I don't know. It can look like a million things. It's, it's leveraging all of our resources. It's our money. It's our time. It's our heart. It's our love. It's our relational capacity It's our skills, it's our positions, it's everything. It's leveraging all of that to set people free. Say, I don't have to use all this to build my kingdom anymore. I can use all this to set you free and buy you back so that you can come and be a part of this community of free people, the people of God who he loves. And he will always give us enough. Um, I was reading this week and... I saw something, there's a a man, a a generation before us who's a famous author and he had a friend who is a Christian and and he said this about, this was like his best friend and he said this about his friend. He is an everlasting barrier between me and atheism. He is an everlasting barrier between me and atheism because when I see the way that that man lives, the gospel must be true because no one can live like that if this is not true. And so not only can we, can we use our resources to set others free, but we can also repent. <laughs> Actually, for the first time, I can confess my sin to you and repent and be honest about needing to. And Nehemiah um, leaves a great example for us. He models this. We are going to need to all the time because we are still in this body of flesh. And so until Jesus returns, we are always going to be sinning. We're always going to be forgetting what we have in Christ and going back to living out of the scarcity mentality. And we're going to need to confess our sin and ask forgiveness from each other. And Nehemiah says in this passage, he clearly was not doing anything like like the nobles were doing. But even in thinking about all of this, it is clear that he found something that he was doing that he was like, you know what, even what I'm doing, that's not right. Like as I reflect on everything that, that these people are doing and I re- reflect on my own life and turn the spotlight on myself, there's something that I'm doing that's not right. And I'm going to stop doing that. And so now we have the freedom to live like this because we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be afraid that when I out myself as a sinner that God is going to leave me or hate me. Um, all of that's been paid for on the cross. And so now in my relationship with you, I can say, hey, you know what? I'm sinned against you and I'm sorry and, and here's everything back. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That's where you and I are going to find healing is in that confession. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And guess what? You are a righteous person because our righteousness is Christ's. He has given us his righteousness. And so our prayers are powerful and effective. But if we keep taking, if we refuse to confess our sins to one another... And to those outside of the walls of God's people, um, Nehemiah warns us at the end of this passage, you will be shaken out and emptied because you, don't, you must not know Christ. And, and everyone who doesn't know Christ is, is gonna be what they are now, just forever separated from him. 1 John 3, 6 says, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning no one who abides in Jesus keeps living like this. Yes, we're gonna go back to that from time to time and then we're gonna, because of the Holy Spirit living in us, convicting us of sin, we're gonna jump out of that and say, hey, that was wrong, I'm sorry. But no one who, who keeps sinning and lives in this practice and is not convicted of this sin, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen Jesus or known him. It's not possible. You cannot, you cannot be loved with the love of Christ and continue to live like this unchanged. And so as we work to free people at our expense and repent when we forget who we are in Christ, you know, we've been talking about building walls and gates. That's a big powerful gate for people to run through to Jesus, to see who Jesus really is. And may it be said of us uh, when we're living like that, that, that you are an everlasting barrier between the people in your life who don't know God and atheism. Like this must be true because look at the way that they love me. I've never had a friend like this. I've never had a coworker like this. I've never had somebody who cares about me like this. May that be said of us as we, as we go in the power and the love of Jesus. Um, so now I'm gonna lead us in a, a guided prayer and just ask the Lord to um, speak to us about these things. And um, I'm just going to leave some space for you to engage with him. And, um, and then I'll close us. Jesus, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you uh, that you are our Lord. You are actively leading us in how to live. You're like, um, you're a good father who's teaching us how to grow up and how to live. And so, um, one, we would just want to ask you, will you show us where we're currently right now living like an orphan? Show us where we're living out of a scarcity mentality. Um, show us where we're living like a slave who am I enslaving right now with the way that I'm treating them? Jesus, how are you calling me to repent and uh, return to others what I've taken from them? Jesus, will you you give me the faith to uh, believe and see you for who you are? Would you become more beautiful to me than the other things that I'm so scared of losing or not getting? And would we get to experience and live out of that freedom and would that be a very powerful thing, Lord? Would you use us to continue to build gates that people can walk through uh, to come and know you and see you and have life in you. And, Lord, even for us, Lord, would, would, would we not be like those who, who have a, an infinite bank account and continue to stand on the streets like beggars and steal from people? Lord, would you get me in touch? Would you get us in touch with our abundance in you? Lord, thank you that you, you hear these prayers and you will answer them. There is no doubt that you will answer these prayers because thank God we are righteous in you. We are not standing on our own righteousness. And you tell us that the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective, and we thank you for that. In your name, amen.